You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Well, welcome to The Way Home Podcast, my friends. I'm so glad that you joined me today. And uh, I have a very special guest on, my good friend, Chris Crawford. Uh, Chris uh, has a long history of advocacy uh, in the pro-life movement, having worked for places like the Susan B. Anthony Fund and worked on the Hill and worked in several other places. He now works for an organization called the Democracy Fund. And uh, I wanted to have him on because he has been interested particularly in some things that I think a lot of us are talking about as it gets closer to election season, uh, voting and uh, the importance of voting and particularly in a pandemic, uh, some of the questions that people have about whether voting in person is safe, uh, whether you can trust when you do your absentee ballots, your mail-in, mail-in ballots, if that is what you're choosing, or early voting. But more importantly, we have a discussion, too, about his views on human dignity and how the pro-life view has shaped kind of the way he sees everything else all these other issues, how that has kind of shaped his worldview based on uh, Catholic social teaching, which uh, as a Southern Baptist, I'm definitely not Catholic, but I do appreciate and have borrowed from uh, at times Catholic social teaching, which I think is enormously helpful to help us think through some of the complex issues in our society. So this will be a really good conversation and fun conversation with Chris Crawford. Well, I'm glad to have my friend Chris Crawford here with me on uh, the Way Home podcast. And Chris, we've known each other for a while, but this is the first time I've actually had you on my podcast. So welcome to the Way Home. I think this is my first podcast ever. So yeah, this is a, this is a big day. So before we talk about some of the issues that we wanted to talk about, like voting and some other other issues that I think Christians are thinking about this election. I want to get your story a little bit. So I think you have an interesting, interesting story. So you worked for a long time on pro-life uh, issues for some pro-life organizations. Uh, so maybe, maybe talk a little bit about how you came into that work, uh, how you formed your convictions on that that issue. Absolutely. Um, so I'm a cradle Catholic. I grew up Catholic in New Hampshire, and for pretty much as long as I could remember, um, the right to life was an issue. Um, that I was concerned about. Um, being from New Hampshire in the first in, in the nation primary state, uh, I've been active in politics from a young age. Uh, my dad used to take me to presidential primary events and town halls, and things like that, even when I was a kid. And politics for me, even at a young age, and as I was really coming of age, working in politics, was always viewed for me through a lens of human dignity. Um, and the right to life is obviously at the center of that. And so When I was at George Washington University for undergrad, I was looking for places to intern and Susan B. Anthony List was hiring. And I was especially interested in them because I had been a volunteer for Senator Kelly Ayotte in her campaign. And so seeing an organization that was focused specifically on electing pro-life women, I thought was really interesting. And I wanted to be able to help out um, however I could. And then 
on and off through my time at George Washington, it was kind of hard for Susan B. Anthony List to get rid of me, I think. I interned on and off, I think, from sophomore year all the way until I graduated. And then when I graduated, I worked on their super PAC in the 2014 election doing organizing in three key states and then um, Kansas eventually because Kansas suddenly was very close in the 2014 election. But that's always been something that I cared a lot about. the pro-life cause and the dignity of every person and the dignity of human life. And it remains something that's important to me, even as I'm no longer working professionally in the pro-life movement. Um, It's at the core of my own political engagement. And I think it goes beyond just the issue of abortion too. Um, It informs, that's the lens that I really view every political issue and really my relationship to our democracy more broadly. Human dignity being at this kind of the center of how you see issues that that is really at the core of Catholic social teaching, is it not? And you know, obviously, I'm I'm a Southern Baptist, and I'm proud of that. And I'll, this this is probably where I'll be there my whole life in terms of my faith tradition and where I land. But we owe a lot to Catholic social teaching to shape us. Initially, on abortion, you know, Southern Baptists were late to this when when Roe versus Wade came down. I think some prominent Southern Baptists even praised the ruling. Of course, Richard Land, who was the ERLC president at the time, was kind of prophetic, saying, no, no, this is not just a Catholic issue. This is a, an issue that evangelicals and Southern Baptists should care about. But it's not just on the abortion issue. It's been a, been a wide range of issues. You know, Catholic social teaching is really important. Explain a little bit about how that formed you, you know, growing up and how that kind of forms people with that, with that conscience. Absolutely. Um, I think you're right that across Christian traditions, but even... In our public life itself, I think the richness of Catholic social thought um, can be seen across different issues of concern and that commitment to immigrants and refugees, the preferential option for the poor, I think is, should be central to all of our political engagement. Um, And I'm, I'm very grateful to have grown up in that tradition. I'm grateful to the work that John Carr and Kim Daniels do at Georgetown at the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life really bringing these issues of human dignity and concern for all people to the front of political engagement. And I think it's also important because it makes voting harder. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because either of our two political parties really fit within the framing of Catholic social teaching. And I've, I really agonize over who to vote for election to election because there are so many issues that are important to me that have to do with the dignity of all people. And neither of our parties really toe the line when it comes to caring for the most vulnerable. And it's a challenge, but I think it's it's okay for it to be challenging. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. I agree with you that I think the fact that voting is agonizing isn't a bad thing. And I might say it in a different way, but arriving at the same area where I think our mutual friend, Michael Ware, has said, if you feel homeless in any party, maybe it's because you never should have felt at home at all. And I, I remember reading that when he wrote that, but I, the way I would say it is when I read first Peter, when he talks about Christians being strangers and exiles, I, I think, I believe the two things that are actually somewhat con- seem contradictory. I believe we should join institutions and parties. And then I also think we should hold those loosely. So I think we should be building institutions and part of these movements, but understanding that we'll never be at home in any earthly movement. There should always be some 
dissonance, some separation between our movement and the kingdom of God. And that's okay. We should always be a little bit uncomfortable. And if we're not uncomfortable within what party or movement we've chosen, it could be that we have misaligned ethics, right? Yeah. And I think it's harmful to our Christian witness if we hold sort of the party as an idol and if we're tied to the Mm -hmm. party above anything else um, when it comes to our politics, especially if it leads us to abandon the truth. I think that's an especially Mm -hmm. dangerous place to be. I think it's okay to be a member of either party and vote with your party and challenge your party. Um, I think the challenging your party is an important piece of it. If you start defending the indefensible or being dishonest about your opponents because you feel ultimate allegiance to your political party, I think that that's tremendously harmful to our witness as Christians. Yeah, I think so too. And at the other end of it, I think it's also important as a bulwark against a kind of a, I think sometimes, and I fall into this trap too, we can, we can also fall into a kind of like, I'm above it all thing where we don't get involved. A pox on both houses, everybody's corrupt. I'm not going to get involved. And I feel a deep conviction that that's wrong too, because when I look at Jesus, well, really throughout the, the, the scripture, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And the fact that we're in a representative republic where we say the government's of the people, by the people, for the people, how do we say we love, for instance, our unborn neighbor or love our immigrant neighbor if we have a voice and a vote and opportunities to speak up and we don't, right? And I also look at Romans 13 where Rome, where, where Paul says governments are held accountable for, for the power. We look at that as saying, okay, yeah, whoever's in office is going to be held. But I think we're held accountable because we we share some power in a, in a, in a republic, democratic republic like ours. So it seems like having having that view where you join parties and institutions, you make votes, but you hold it loosely is a bulwark against either idolatry of the party, but also disengagement, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that sometimes we can hold, a lot of Catholics especially use the term politically homeless. I don't have a political home. And we sometimes can wear that as a badge of honor to sort of disengage and act as though we're above the fray, act as though we're outside of politics. But I don't think that's helpful. I think we do have to, even if you can't do it within the the party structures, Mm -hmm. finding ways to work on issues or work to strengthen those institutions is vitally important. And I think taking that step back and saying, well, no, I'm just above it all. Nobody's good is actually, to your point, very harmful. And John Carr talks about how cynicism is actually more dangerous than corruption among young people trying to find a vocation in politics. And I think he's exactly right. Mm, mm, yeah, that's good. And um, one more point on this, because I think it's such an important discussion. I have increasingly said that I am less concerned with someone's vote, although voting is important. And we're actually going to talk about voting here. That's a good segue. I'm less concerned about voting because, as you said, it's agonizing. You're giving up something when you vote for somebody in favor of some other priority. And let's be honest, other people have different priorities than others. That doesn't make either of them wrong. Some people prioritize some issues of human dignity, some others, and that might leave them on different sides in an election. I'm less concerned about where people end up with their vote and more concerned with what they do with their vote afterwards. So do you wrap your ethics around your vote to the point where you're always going to defend your guy or you're always going to lash out at the other party? Or are you willing to say, yes, I'm going to vote this way, but whenever they violate my conscience, I'm not going to go with that whenever they violate them. Does, does that make sense? 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think you're spot on there. What I really appreciate about your writing and your engagement is you sort of have provided this platform for not just thinking about the ends of our politics, even though you have strong opinions there, but also the means of how we go about voting, the means of how we go about relating to our governing institutions and to each other. And I think that's a really important piece of our own discernment in public life that I think gets under-discussed when we are frequently told the end justifies any means right mm. now in the hyper-partisanship and polarization that we face. And because the stakes are so high, it's easy to fall into that trap and think that we can justify anything um, to get our political way. But I think that we still have to worry about our souls and the way that we go about reaching our conclusions um, and carrying them out. Mm. That's good. Speaking of voting, you know, there, there's an interesting conversation going on about voting itself. It seems to me, you know, I've been following elections since I was a kid. I, I like you, was the same thing. Now, I, I don't know that my parents were taking me to, to election stuff as much as yours were, but I followed it ever since I was a kid. I, my first election I really paid attention to was 88. Always read the newspaper, always cared about it. My leisure time is reading a presidential biography, which, which tells you something about me good or bad. Um, I don't remember a time in my life where the actual act of voting has been under more discussion from both sides of the aisle and the media, given that we're in a pandemic and there's just, there's talk about election security, but there's also talk about, is it safe to vote to come in and mail-in voting versus in-person? So there's a project out there that you, you've been talking about really helping people think through this issue and not just that, but also how Christians can can actually help, not just, you know, that like this is a way to be involved to help people be able to vote safely. So I guess my first question is, what got you so interested in this topic? In my work at Democracy Fund, I've learned a lot about voting. Um, I don't know that I'm an expert on elections at this point, but I know a lot of people who are. <laughs> um, but I think my work specifically in the Faith and Democracy Portfolio of Democracy Fund is focused on promoting pluralism and especially through a faith-based lens and empowering faith-based communities to be equipped with how to promote pluralism, understand the importance, and then also have the tools to promote it. And I care a lot about our governing institutions and I think that all of our freedoms depend on these institutions and trusted elections and a voting system that works. It doesn't matter what issue you're active on, if people don't trust the election results, if people don't feel engaged in the voting process, we aren't really going to have any of those freedoms very long. <laughs> um, so this central piece of voting is vital to any freedom, any issue that you care about. And in this election in particular with the pandemic, there's also a number of issues related to safety and human dignity, I think in the voting process itself, and then especially ways that churches can step up and other religious institutions can step up along these different pieces of the voting process um, to support those institutions, to keep people safe, to protect the right to vote. And I think religious communities are often called to act on specific political issues. And what I'm trying to do is promote a safe, accessible election as an issue that faith communities should care about in the same way that I'm promoting pluralism, been promoting pluralism mm -hmm. as something that Christians and all people of faith should take on as an important item. Yeah. When we talk about pluralism, I, I'm, I liked your work on that. And, and it really, you know, one of the focuses of your work with the Democracy Zone is I've watched what you 
have been involved with is really institution building, right? The, the important institutions in our democracy that matter. You know, I think as Americans, we just kind of take for granted the fact that we take for granted our vote, it seems like, or the fact that we have, for the most part, free and fair elections. There's, you know, stories and there's things here and there where things have gone awry or there's been corruption or, or whatever throughout our history. But those, are, for the most part, are pretty, pretty rare, right, compared to people who live in other developing countries or whatever. I'd at least say in, in modern history, white Americans especially have, yes, felt, yeah. have taken that for granted. I don't think our black sisters have felt like their vote could be taken for granted. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and I was going to condition that a little bit, particularly when you talk about the civil rights movement, voting has been a central thing. And I do think that white Americans like myself, who have always just, you know, we vote and we feel like it's always been that way for African-American friends, you know, this is an issue, you know, that something they feel real deeply about. I mean, you know, people died to have the right for minorities to vote. You know, think of John Lewis just passed away. That was a central part of his life and his legislative career. And so I guess first tell me and talk about what are some things that we can be thinking about in terms of the conversation uh, about voting that's happening. Absolutely. Um, Going back to Catholic social teaching, um, one theme of Catholic social teaching is participation, and that's participation in families, but also in broader civil society. And so from my faith-based perspective, denying someone participation in civil society Um, is an affront to Catholic social thought, Catholic social teaching. And I think everyone needs that opportunity to engage in our public life. And so I do think it's an issue of faith and an issue of conscience for everyone to have access to voting. I do think it's a religious issue. On top of that, there's also the concerns related to the pandemic and the safety and health related to voting. And that's where I think religious communities in particular have these sort of on-ramps to get involved in ways that they might not have been called to do so in the past. I think that a lot of pastors, a lot of priests, a lot of other religious leaders at this time of year start feeling a lot of pull to the left and pull to the right on different political issues, policy issues. And I think they can discern how to do that. But I also think that there's opportunities for people who don't want to be seen as political, who have a very sort of low bar for what they think of as too risky as far as political action and just want to support our civil society, there are a few actions that they can take to just support the institutions of voting, especially as we are facing a health crisis where some people might not be able to make it to the polls. And so I'm working on, I did an interview with Charlie Camosi at Crux, and I'm working on a resource at Democracy Fund right now that I think should be published by the time that your podcast would air. And there's a few items that I wanna sort of go over that I think religious communities are particularly primed to take action on. Yeah, let's do that. And uh, this is an area where I don't know if Christians or religious communities realize that I could actually really serve my community in this way. Absolutely. And in fact, I remember when I pastored, I pastored a small church in the Chicago area years ago, and we were a polling place, and we provided our building, and uh, it was wonderful. It was great, and you know, just a great way to serve the community that was not really that difficult for us to pull off, and there's, a, there's all sorts of ways that we can do it. So what are some ways that churches can do that? So let's start there with 
houses of worship can offer their space as polling locations in most states. And I think that's especially important right now for a few reasons. One of them is that with social distancing, a lot of polling locations need more physical space. Um, and so having more polling locations available is going to be helpful for safety as well as keeping the lines short. On top of that, I'd also say that when election officials are looking for polling locations and looking at their districts, it's important for them to know that there are places that want to be polling locations. And if there's anyone that is thinking about closing down polling locations or cutting off access in some way, even just the act of churches saying, we'd like to offer our space can be something that helps to protect the right to vote. So that's, I think the first one, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that that is really important. What I would add to that is a few other items that I think are, there are really specific ways that some of these actions fit within to the different religious teachings that we've talked about. One of them is working at the polls. Yesterday, the Power of the Polls and some of um, their partners had a big campaign day where now they've signed up over 250,000 people to serve as poll workers. And in past elections, we've really relied on older Americans to serve as the people working at the polls. A new generation of people this year with COVID putting older Americans at risk, a new generation really needs to step up. And I think young adult ministries within churches can really push out that information. So I encourage people to look up power the polls um, as a potential partner. They're looking for partners at the local and national level as they continue their work. And I think you can serve your community in that way, in a way that really makes a difference. And with people hurting in a difficult economy right now, most poll workers get paid. So as faith leaders are listening to this and thinking about people in their community who could use a little extra money, this can accomplish that for them. Invite people who are out of work or have less work to work at the polls, especially if there's early voting, there's even more opportunities. But I think that's one way in particular that people can step up to protect the health of their neighbors who otherwise might've worked at the polls, but also can provide financial support um, for people in their communities. Yeah, that's that's really good, Chris. And uh, I wanna encourage folks, is there a place that they can go to get information on, on how to do that that might equip them yeah, absolutely. Powerthepolls.org is the website. Powerthepolls.org. Powerthepolls.org. And I want to stress this is this is so nonpartisan and cross-partisan. Just a way to serve your community. And what I love about this is, you know, a church of any size can do this. You know, this you don't have to have a massive staff to pull this off. You can be a small church, a medium church, and just offer your building. And you know, you know, if that's something you can do, or you can let it be known to your church folks that hey, you know, our community needs some volunteers to help with polling. And what better way to, you know, if you care about human flourishing and you care about democracy, I, I do think about that when whenever I go to vote, even in my community, that um, grateful for the folks who are there helping this. I don't think it's any surprise. I lean fairly conservative, but mm -hmm. I live in a, a more progressive County Davidson County here in Nashville. And one of the last few places in this society where there's just good bipartisan sort of camaraderie is our polling places. Cause you've got these judges and I don't know who they vote for or whatever, but you can just sense that there's Republicans, there's Democrats or whatever. And they're just helping make this thing go smoothly. It's just a great way that we can serve. Um, uh, Absolutely. And I think as we think about some potential, one thing that I'm worried about a lot right now is different conspiracy theories that may mm -hmm. arise. I want to um, talk about the, that. The 
and after the election. And I think if you have the opportunity to be a part of our democracy on the front lines um, and work at a polling location, I think it would be much harder to believe that something was afoot. If you've looked around, you can sort of see the way that the institution works, see the way that these are your neighbors who care about their community that are working at the polls. Um, and I think that the more people are engaged, the more they'll trust these institutions in the way that they should. Mm, that's that's good. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the the sort of questions that are out there. And I know you're not a an election expert by any stretch, and I don't expect you to do that. Uh, but there are some, I think, across the spectrum, some questions about voting. And what I like about this report that you, you know, you have posted this on social media, and I think it's well worth reading resources from the National Tax Force on Election Crises, which is a kind of a bipartisan group. Some really good resources on the website. It's electiontaskforce.org. But there's a report there based on, I think the primaries, the, the primary season, which kind of part of it went through COVID and some of the lessons that were learned. And I think there's concern on both sides about different aspects of this. You know, some people are nervous about it being safe to go in person to vote. And I know Dr. Anthony Fauci said that he felt like if there was social distancing and masks, that actually it's fairly safe. Do you want to address that part of it? And then I also want to just talk about some people are concerned about mail-in balloting and, you know, some of the other ways to vote. Absolutely. And I think where we should start with this is that we should have the approach when we are not experts to be comfortable going to the experts and looking deeply into the resources that are available from the experts. And I think that leaders of faith in particular have a responsibility. Their first responsibility in public life is a commitment to the truth, in my opinion, because I think your entire witness will be questioned and your credibility is questioned if you are not seeking the truth. And obviously there's, there's scripture behind that as well about our commitment to the truth. And so I'd start there is that religious leaders should, number one, not spread conspiracy theories and need to be really careful about when they see information that causes them to question things to really get to the source. And so one thing that I would say on the front end is that our faith leaders should be sources for trusted information and to provide their congregations with information that so that they know where to go for trusted information. And a few examples are the National Association of Secretaries of State has a website. Mm, that's good. Um, a Can I Vote platform and Election 411 from the League of Women Voters. Those are two places where people can check their voter registration status, find their polling location, request an absentee or mail-in ballot, and keep up um, with the changing information related to the election. And I think churches should direct people to where to find trusted information. Um, and I think that's critical. I'd also say that the CDC has very clear guidelines on voting. Local elections officials should have clear guidelines when it comes to the safety of voting. The Brennan Center for Justice has put out um, information on the need for safe voting. And I think that a lot of people are concerned about voting in person. And we should recognize that there should be very robust opportunities for people to vote absentee. Um, if they are at risk. And that's something that, um, at least for the next couple of weeks, I think most people can still advocate for their localities to make COVID an absentee um, excuse. 
So I, I would encourage people to do that. But we also have to understand, and this is in the report from the task force, voting in person is still going to be happening and it's still going to be important. There's a lot of reasons that some people can't vote um, absentee or by mail. We're going to need the in-person options. And that's why things like working at the polls um, and offering polling locations are important because voting in person is still going to happen in most states. Some places obviously have all mail-in voting. People are still going to need to vote in person and we have to make sure that they have the opportunity to vote safely. And I would say your election officials are committed to that. And I think that's what Dr. Fauci was talking about is that you're able to hold safe elections. And I think we're gonna see that this fall. Yeah, one of the, the things that the report I think highlighted as well is some lessons learned in terms of how early voting can also be a, a resource for folks where there's less people you you sure that your vote gets there and gets counted. That seems to be a good option. And then when it comes to um, absentee voting or mail-in voting, I think there's some concern. Will will it get there in time? Will it be counted? You know, the the postmaster general said that we can handle it. We've got the staffing. So what I think advice or, or things you want to offer on some of the concerns around that? And obviously you're not an election expert, but you might have some, some things that you've, you've, found? I would check with your secretaries of state's um, website in your state to Mm -hmm. figure out what the rules are regarding when your absentee ballot has to get in, because I don't think it's the same state by state. Mm -hmm. I would check on anything that you have any question about as far as voting. I would go to your secretaries of state's website to get more information. And because a lot of the rules are state by state, I especially don't want to say anything that's incorrect for someone's state right now. Um, But I would go to those trusted resources for information um, and use those as your guide because you want to be rooted in the facts from your local officials, from the election officials, so that you don't make any mistakes along the way. And it's going to be tricky. I think that people, part of the reason that we're trying to promote people educating themselves is that this is a more challenging election with the pandemic, but our institutions are rising to the occasions. We as citizens can rise to that occasion. And it's important for everyone to be focused on minimizing the challenges and getting the right information out there. It also does seem that everyone needs to have a plan for how they're going to vote. Absolutely. So if you're going to vote in person, that's great. If you're going to vote through the, one of these other alternate methods, if you really take this seriously, it, you know, have a plan and make sure you're you're within the, the deadlines and the dates and all those things really seems... Right. Important, and so we'll post a link to that report and some really important things there. You had mentioned early voting, and there's a whole effort called at voteearlyday.org. Voteearlyday.org. October 24th is this day that that campaign is focused on um, people voting early, and Vote Early Day is looking for partners at the national and local level. Um, National faith organizations can be partners. Local churches can be partners. And I would encourage people to check that out because, again, this all comes back to the safety of our communities and our neighbors and helping our institutions to absorb what will be a difficult election. So vote as early as you can, I would say. Return your absentee ballots as early as you can. Request your absentee ballots as early as you can, just so that you don't have to worry about any of the things um, that people are worried about. Each of us can do our part to vote early, get our absentee ballots in early, request our absentee ballots early, 
so that we are supporting our institutions and then keeping the lines shorter on election day so that people aren't together in line for longer than they need to. I think all of this ties together, like the support for our democratic institutions and the safety of our neighbors and our communities are tied together in just about every decision we're going to make when we're deciding to make our plan on how to vote. Mm. That's that's good. And I, I guess I want to end it by going back to something you said a minute ago and and doing this shamelessly because it fits in kind of with the themes of my book right now, Away With Words. I do think it's really important about this election and particularly about this issue that we not unintentionally spread disinformation about voting uh, on our platforms. I mean, if you're on Twitter and Facebook, there's conspiracy theories flying left, right, and center. And it seems really unhelpful and is making people fearful. It does seem that we need to be to follow James' advice to, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, or as I would say, uh, slow to post, slow to internet rage. Before we post about this issue, I see a lot of folks reacting to headlines. You know, the, the folks at our media institutions who are doing a wonderful job the headline writers, you know, they're writing the headlines so that you click. But I really always encourage folks like don't form opinions or spread things based on a headline. Read the whole article, wait a day or two, see if it actually holds up. Why is that so important, especially in an election and especially when it comes to this important institution of voting? I think it's really important um, for the reasons I talked about earlier, first from a faith perspective, because people should look at us as Christians and say, that's an honest person. That's a truthful person. And part of that is not just avoiding intentionally lying, but also making sure that what we're saying is actively true and that we've checked it out. I would say you do want to click the link, get past the headline, read the whole article, but also turn to the experts to figure out, is what I'm reading indicating something that I should be worried about? Or is it indicating something that is actually commonplace or actually something that we can handle. And I think one area in particular that I'm really concerned about when we think about um, potential election crises is that because there's going to be more mail-in ballots, absentee ballots this year, it could take longer to count the votes. And what I'm concerned about with the media is I want everybody in the media at all levels to understand that this election result, we probably won't know at 10, 11 o'clock who's won the election as we normally do. And the messaging from the media should be focused on walking people through that this is normal, this is accepted, um, expected. And that messaging has to start before election day, but especially as we're all tuning in um, on election night to understand that this process is going to take longer in all likelihood. And that that is not I keep thinking back to watching Chuck Todd Iowa caucus night when he first said something is afoot here um, with problems that they had with the counting system in Iowa. The media has to be careful to point out what is normal on that day, what we should be expecting so that people don't go into conspiracies. And also, if it takes a longer time to count the ballots, if it spreads into days and weeks for people to still understand that this is normal, because I think there will be leaders across the board. I think there will be leaders who will try to spread misinformation during that time period, especially if there's a candidate that expects to do well with in-person voting and worse on absentee voting. If a candidate is winning on election night, 
they might want to say, look, I'm up by X percentage, I'm declaring victory tonight, and the votes that come after this are a fraud, when in reality, it just will take a longer time to count the votes. And I think that people need to realize that it's going to take a little bit longer, and that's normal. And when they hear candidates um, pushing particular narratives about what each of these steps means, to go back to those trusted sources of information and find out what is expected, what is okay. And I think that that's, that's my biggest message is keep returning to the trusted sources of information and ask faith leaders to rise to this occasion where their flock is going to be facing more confusion um, when it comes to voting. And so be a source of truthful information, a source against disinformation for your communities. I think that's something that faith leaders can really be anchors for good information in their church and beyond. Mm, that's good. And I often find sometimes with articles that have salacious headlines, when you read the whole thing and you actually get to the spot where they quote an expert, often the expert either contradicts the headline or kind of moderates it some, you know, but that's always farther down, like, well, actually, blah, blah, blah. So that's that's good advice. We we as Christians need to be responsible about what we say in public on public platforms and what information we spread. People are watching us, particularly when it comes around the election and particularly on election night, and really see the importance of the peaceful transfer of power uh, or the peaceful continuation of power if you know if the incumbent's elected and why that matters. And so, you know, I can't change what some politician tweets or whatever, but I can control what I say. And I think it matters, right? And I think around the transition, that's where we really have to trust our institutions and be committed to our institutions Mm. above maybe our party preference or political candidate preference. And I think that that's sort of the intersection of the election work and the pluralism work where we have to understand we have obligations when we win elections and we have obligations when we lose elections. And I think people have to be committed to our democracy. The reason that I care about democracy and work at a place called Democracy Fund isn't that I have a sort of romantic attachment to democracy. It's because of that belief I have in human dignity and human flourishing. And I think democracy is the best way to achieve human flourishing. And so that's why I'm so committed to these democratic institutions and things like pluralism and like just a functioning election system is that I think if you care about human dignity and human life and care about everything that's encompassed in our politics, you have to care about the systems and the avenues for us to engage in politics. Um, And that's something I would call your listeners to for the next few months. Mm, That's really good. Chris Crawford, I'm glad that uh, you're doing the work you're doing and you're doing important work, not just on this, but on a wide range of things that uh, is really important and glad you came on the podcast. Hope to have you back sometime. Thank you very much, Dan. Everybody buy Dan's books. Hey, I did not pay him to say that, but I agree with it. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. 
We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening in to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. Thank you.